Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good evening, Jundo. How are you feeling today? I'm still feeling fine, and uh, my son has these sniffles. This day and age, you have to wonder, is that it, or is yes. it just the sniffles? Yeah. Do you know about, um, there's an old Chinese koan, uh, I'm going to modernize it a little bit, about uh, Tom's cold and Mary's sneezing. Do you know that one? No, I don't. It says, if Tom gets a cold, Mary sneezes. And it's supposed to show that we are so interconnected that what happens to Tom actually causes Mary to sneeze, meaning that in Buddhist terms, Mary is just Tom, and Tom is Mary. But in what's going on now, we really do see how interconnected we are. What happens in Wuhan goes to Paris, goes to New York, goes to Tokyo. And uh, this is a very special time to learn some lessons about Buddhism, who we really are, what's important in this life. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. I, I think the point about interconnection is interesting because we were talking a bit before the show. And uh, the last major epidemic like this was 1918, 1919 with the flu. And the world wasn't interconnected in the same way. Uh, the flu got worse because of all the soldiers coming home from Europe at the end of the war. But people weren't traveling as much. Today, you can get on a plane in Tokyo and you can be in London in, I don't know, eight hours later. Uh, and, and there's like an Indra's net of plane routes going around the world. If you look at a map showing all the plane routes and every city is somehow connected at one or two steps to every other city. Well, Buddhists believe that we're always that interconnected, even without the media and even without the airplane that what happens on one side of the planet, sooner or later, directly or indirectly, affects everything. And this is just a, a demonstration of this. One, one of the incredible things about this is that we're afraid because there are unseen causes, these invisible viruses. We don't know where they are. They could be anything we touch. They could be with the person next to us. We don't know. And that's scary. But at the same time, it's a lesson that what we do now can save someone unseen. For example, they're talking about flatten the, flatten the curve yeah. is what it's called, yes? What you do to wash your hand or to limit social contact may actually save a hospital bed for someone who needs it weeks from now on the other side of the planet. This is the interconnected world we're living in now. And it's not just a scary thing. It's actually a beautiful thing in which what we do can help others. And we have to look at this event not just as, it's a terrible thing, it's a scary thing, but it's also an opportunity 
for us to find the best of what it means to be a human being. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. Does that mean if we wash our hands carefully, that makes us bodhisattvas? In a small way, yes, it does. And you know who talked about that? Master Dogen. He talks about everything. Well, uh, one of the reasons was when they were living in the monastery in such close quarters, hygiene was important because I guarantee you it wasn't just a matter that you had to sit three feet away from someone who, who may not have had the best you know, bathing habits. It was much more than that. It really was also illnesses that would travel through the monastery. So Master Dogen turned the simple act of washing the hands not just into a habit of you know, staying clean, but into a spiritual practice. That's what I'd like to encourage all our listeners, many of whom I, I guess are Buddhists and Zen Buddhists. I'd like to encourage them to turn as much of this as they can into spiritual practice and learning opportunities. So how did Master Dogen do it? He said, you know, don't just grab the soap and, you know, wash your hands. No, think of the Buddha. Think of cleanliness, not just of the hands, but of the spirit. He said, for example, the Garland Sutra says, when we wash the hands with water, we should recite that living beings will get excellent and fine hands with which to receive and retain the Buddha Dharma. To pick up the water label, always use the right hand. And while doing this, do not splash the water. And he goes on and on for many paragraphs in detail, turning it into a ritual, the ritual of washing the hand. So these days we have to wash our hands. And they say, you know, recite the happy birthday twice for 20 seconds to do a good job. Well, recite that uh, little saying from the Garland Sutra twice. That takes about 20 seconds, too. And really turn it into a spiritual practice of helping other sentient beings. Dogen wrote a number of texts that could be considered mundane, right? Instructions for the cook, um, where he points out that being the cook at a monastery is one of the most important positions spiritually. It is our Soto Zen belief that the ordinary is sacred and the sacred is ordinary. Now, that's true in normal life, but especially now. So, for example, if you have to nurse the sick, it is the practice of a bodhisattva. If you have to take extra care to clean the kitchen, it is the practice of the heart. It is a spiritual practice. All we are doing now seems to be not just rote actions we need to take, but truly, truly, it can be turned into a kind of mass, a kind of ritual. Uh, and I'd like the people to, to do that. You know, we have to do it anyway. We have to do this stuff anyway, because the experts are saying so. So let's keep the attitude that this is actually a, a religious practice, a, a, a chance for us to learn. I saw an article the other day that said, I think it was a survey of people, the percentage of people who don't wash their hands after they use the toilet, even in public toilets, and it was an astounding percentage. So at a minimum, if this gets people to think about washing their hands even after this disease has passed, this will help everyone in preventing other diseases. You've, you've mentioned that you've had food poisoning, serious food poisoning, which is generally yeah. caused by people not washing their hands. Well, uh, 
You know, I, I've been watching today, people, and even with all that's going on in the news, it uh, it seems that people could be doing a, a better job of it. Yeah, uh, I think so. You know, what we, what we're doing is is slowing down this illness, which is a very good thing because we want to keep the hospital beds open. But, you know, um, let's look at this. You know, part of an important part of religious practice is to be on retreat, to separate yourself in, from the world, to turn off the noise, to really think what's important about life. This is being forced upon us, many of us, as a quarantine or as a lockdown in a city. Since you have to be in quarantine or in a lockdown, think of it as a kind of retreat. I know it's not one you voluntarily entered into, but the effect could be you know, much the same. Uh, it's a chance to practice. You mentioned slowing down, and, and I think that's really interesting. I'm looking at it from here, and we're so early into this that it's impossible to predict anything. But where I live, they've canceled sports. For example, professional football, soccer. Um, it's canceled. They're talking about canceling the entire season. So essentially taking much of a year off. In my day job, I'm a journalist. I read about technology. And I wrote a thing a couple of weeks ago. What if Apple didn't release that iPhone 12 this year? What if they waited two years? What if everyone just took a year off and things slowed down? It could change the way we think about so much. You know, when the people got locked on those cruise ships, I thought, first off, it's a terrible thing. You don't want people to be sick. And I, I feel sorry for them. These people were trying to go on vacation. But I thought, you know, maybe the, some of them sat there and thought, this is really what the cruise should have been about, <laughs> which is my not playing bingo and rushing off to the show and the buffet and stuffing my face with as much shrimp as I can eat. <laughs> you know, when you go on a cruise these days, it's just a continuation of modern life of entertain me, give me more, more, more. I want to see the next shiny thing. Yeah. Uh, play some music, entertain me. No, these are people who actually were told, stay here and stop. Maybe they thought about, what's the meaning of my family? I miss them. What is life and death? What is really important? Maybe, maybe some of them actually got more out of this from what they should get from a cruise than if uh, the vacation had gone as planned. Yeah, it's a good point. When I, when I, I've never been on a cruise. I have a friend who goes every year. And when I think about the idea, as you say, of the shows and the buffets and all, it's, that doesn't seem relaxing. Uh, though, to be fair, the people who were in the uh, interior cabins without windows, it must have been quite difficult. Uh, I believe I remember someone being interviewed on the news here, and he said that he and his wife always take the interior cabins because there's less movement of the ship, um, but not having windows made it quite difficult. I'm sure in the monastery, too, the, they were the cheap... <laughs> <laughs> seats with had no windows. The, the cheap cabins the are the ones without the windows. It's true that if someone has to be home right now, take advantage of it. Um, you and I work at home, so we don't have this problem. But a lot of people, to get to work, they spend an hour in the morning. And to get home, they spend an hour at night. That means that they're going to be home with two hours of free time. Imagine what they could do with that. I would like them to take stock of what is really important in life. Life is precious. You know, they say the best things in life are not the material things. This is a chance for people to really focus on 
what was it all about? What are we working for? What are we striving for so much? They need to sit at home in the quiet and reflect a little bit and think that, uh, you know, life is short. It's true, but it's not a matter of long or short either. It's, it's a matter of what you're doing with this moment. And for this moment, maybe some people are reappraising really what's important in life. So there may be a lot of good that comes out of this, un, uh, as unwelcome as it is. There's a lot of good. A lot of people are going to be fearful. Now, there yeah. is a teaching, and, and some Buddhist teachers teach this, uh, I think more in the Tibetan tradition, that live every day like it's your last day. And when we read that in a book and we think about it, it's like, yeah, I'll get up tomorrow, I'll live like it's my last day. But we can't, because we're not, we're just not able to think like that. Well, but now I think for many people, we can start appreciating the value of each day by understanding what this fear is doing. Well, I don't like that expression, live for, for it's like your last day. It's like you, you're going to have the bucket list. Okay, let's go parachuting and let me buy that Mercedes <laughs> Benz I always want to. It's not about that. It, it, it's more about live for this moment, realizing that it has been all right here all along. And and part of that can be, you know, I, I'm a Zen priest, but we also use some Tibetan practices that uh, are very powerful and can be very helpful here in people dealing with fear. And may I give you a couple? Sure. Because there are a lot of people panicked, a lot of people afraid. I, I as I've said before, I'm I'm not immune to it, at least. Uh, I'm the Woody Allen of Zen teachers. At least once in an hour, every mole is cancer for me. You know, I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm prone to it. So this is what has worked for me. Number one, when you feel fear, observe it and watch it as if you're in a theater. No one's going to theater these days, but, you, but uh, as if you're in a theater watching a show about fear. And by observing it and just watching it, it becomes somehow smaller and, and, and more distant. And just breathe through and let the fear be the fear. It really works. But there's even a... I'm going to use a better metaphor. Watch the fear like you're watching a horror movie on Netflix. Right. Don't take it so seriously. It is a movie. It's a movie <laughs> in your head. That's exactly yeah. right. But there is a, yeah. another Tibetan practice called Tonglen that's even more powerful. Because by focusing on other people, it gets you away from yourself. It's really true. So you're feeling fear. You're feeling oh, suffering. But for a moment, focus on wanting to help others. And by focusing on that, it takes you away from looking at yourself. And it's a very easy practice. Can we do it for a second? Sure. Just fear, feel the fear of others, the whole world, coming into your heart for a moment. And as if you're, you're like Shazam the superhero, you have this ability to, in your heart, somehow turn it to peace and comfort and fearlessness. And it comes out of you, out of the top of your head, and pours into the world. All right? It's just imagery. So you, you, you bring in, you inhale the fear, you inhale the worry, and out comes fearlessness. and peace. By doing that to help others, you forget about your own problem. And you yes. notice your heart, the fear in your heart changes too. Very good practice. It has become very popular, yes. many Zen groups in the West. And uh, 
people should give it a try. It's called Tonglen. The version that I practiced when I was following Tibetan Buddhism a few decades ago was that you visualize that you're breathing in a sort of a gray smoke of fear and dukkha, That's and that it. you're breathing out a white smoke, that you're cleaning the smoke out as you breathe out. Yeah, anything like that. That's, that's, that's basically the same. Yeah, any, It's just a visualization. But yeah. the visualization actually changes your feeling, and, you know, helping others is what life is about, too. That's one of the things we should focus on here. I know we're all worried about how our health is, but this is a place where we're all tied together. And we all know elderly people or people who are vulnerable here. We can see very directly that this is not just about getting ourselves in the lifeboat. This is making sure that a lot of people get in the lifeboat too. So we're in the lifeboat. And, you know, being in this lifeboat is a lot like life. Part of life is we've suddenly appeared in this world. And we're, it's like appearing in a boat. How did we get? And we're on a river, and we say, wait a second, we're on this river, and how did we get here? We're born. And the river is sometimes smooth and sometimes rough. And sometimes it goes in the direction we want, and we have a little oar, we can try to steer it, but sometimes the boat goes where we want, and sometimes, like this week, the boat doesn't go exactly where we would want it to go, right? What can a sailor do? Well, Master Dogen and many of the other Zen sailors said, first off, sometimes you, you steer as hard as you can, you try to be diligent, but when you, it doesn't work, accept, let go, yield. There's a time when life gets too powerful for all of us. This is one of those times. When I was in hospital a couple of years ago, I had a condition and my life was in danger and it was beyond me. All I could do was accept, let go, and yield, and it was somehow okay. Life brought me into this boat for some reason. Let life take me where it will. And this is a, a, a situation like that. We cannot control this disease completely. We're doing our best, washing our hands, but the situation is scary. Accept, let go, yield. And, and one more thing that's going to strike people as a, very strange. Feel gratitude for this. Feel gratitude for everything life hands you, even the stuff that is bitter. I know that's hard. People only want what tastes sweet and they like. But part of our Zen practice is to feel gratitude for the whole buffet. In many ways, if we look at our lives, if we look at our lives, you and me, and we were talking before we started recording, um, the last great epidemic that humanity has had was the flu epidemic in 1918, yeah. But you mentioned polio, and antibiotics were only discovered in the 20th century. Um, we're basically living through this window of extraordinary health that humankind has never known before. So we need to feel gratitude for that, for the science, the, no, the no. medicine, the discoveries that have that have led us here. We got to feel gratitude for all aspects of life, not just the things that seem to benefit us. That's what I'm talking I'm talking about what I call great gratitude. There's gratitude, you know, for things that, oh, thanks, I wanted that, but also gratitude for what we don't want. I know it's, it's hard for people to get their head around that, but it's a spiritual practice. 
one of the things is that we at Buddhists accept that life is impermanent. All things are impermanent. Now, yeah, we're living longer, twice as long as our grandparents did, but we're still impermanent. Even if we live 80 years or 100 years, we live in these bodies that last for a time and they go. And we don't want them to go. We don't want to die. You know, one of the Buddhist lessons is yield, let go, accept even the impermanence of life at all. So whether this flu is going to get you or a bus next week or you're going to live to 100 and die in your bed, very good. I wish you a very long and healthy life. But would you accept all of it? Accept the impermanence. I think a lot of the fear is people worried for their family. So yes. if they were to pass, then who would take care of their children, their spouse? Well, a hundred years ago, this was uh, even more so. People were dropping right and left of tuberculosis and one thing or another. We have been spared that. Uh, my grandparents, we were talking before, I, I think my grandmother had 10 children and she lost three of them. And it ended up with uh, eight, I believe, which was very typical in those days. You had so many children because you knew you were going to lose some. It's tragic, but we don't live in that world right now. But, you know, we have to cry when we lose a loved one and also yield and allow the impermanence even of that. Because I'm going to tell you a secret. Ask me my secret. Jundo, what's this week's secret? You know, through our Buddhist practice, we realize that there's something that cannot get sick, something that does not die, and it wasn't born either, by the way, which if you're a Buddhist, you kind of understand what that means. The waves on the sea rise, the waves on the sea fall. There's some waters that are there all along, and through this practice, we realize that, yes, this, this sickness is so scary. There are people who are going to die, and we cry. But we also realize that there is something, like the sea that goes on and on, beyond the waves that rise and fall, there is something in this that is not afraid, not, well... I, I'll just leave silence there, because this is what we taste as we're doing our Zazen meditation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.